Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 10 as we will unpack one of the glorious verses of our scriptures. It stands alone as a pillar in the Christian faith and we are going to delve into it singularly today. That's Mark chapter 10 verse 45, the ransom verse. As you turn there this morning, I want you to understand something that was brought to my attention very vividly this last week. Preaching is worship. What I do here now is an act of worship to God. I'm not making a speech. I am proclaiming from the Word of God the greatest truths of all history. And I want you to also know that there's another part to that, and that is that listening to preaching is worship. And I call you this morning to worship with me as I preach from God's Word. You worship God by listening to God's Word and applying it to your heart. And so we're going to worship together today with me speaking from God's Word and you listening to God's Word. And having said that, I want you to stand right where you are with your scriptures open. And I want us to congregationally read this one verse from the Gospel of Mark. We've got different versions in this room probably. That's okay. You read your version loud and strong and read it as unto the Lord. Are we ready? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we have just read your word that you had scribed out to us long ago. We've just read that as a congregation, and even that was an act of worship. We pray, Father, that you have delighted in hearing your people read your word. And I pray, Father, now that as we sit and as I stand and preach, that you would be worshipped through and through as you intended it to be. Holy Spirit, would you carry us through this service of worship? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible is a book that gives us extensive details about a major problem in the world. Much of these pages are devoted, most of these pages are devoted to a massive problem that has happened in humanity. The problem is sin. There was one sin by one man that led to many sins by many men. I had Greg read Romans chapter 5. We understand clearly that the first man, the Adam of the Old Testament, sinned egregiously, defied God's commands, and through that one man, through inheritance, as we have been born of the flesh of that man and that woman, we too have a problem called sin. All of mankind from Adam forward has been born into bondage to sin, and to death. All mankind has been born, including you, into a state of captivity. And the Bible tells us much about this state of captivity. But also, the Bible doesn't stop there. It's not just bad news, it's also good news, because the Bible gives us extensive details about the solution to this great problem. The solution is, As Greg read in Romans chapter 5, justification. The solution is man is made right before God through the justifying works of Jesus Christ. 
There was one act of righteousness by one man that led to many becoming righteous. This is what the Bible is about in a nutshell. I have just preached the entire scriptures to you in this introduction. There are not many solutions to sin. Our world thinks so. There is one solution to sin. And we are going to see that very clearly this morning from one verse in Mark chapter 10. Jesus tells us four things. We, we could cut this passage up a lot of ways. I, in my study this week, have cut it up into four sections. Jesus says, for even the Son of Man, there's one, came not to be served but to serve, there's two, and to give his life a ransom, there's three, for many. There's four. We're going to unpack each of those phrases this morning for all they're worth as we prepare to gather around the table of Jesus Christ and remember his ransoming work for many. And I pray for us. So the first point I want to make this morning is that we need to answer the question of this passage, who? Who is this son of man? There is a subject in this verse. It is the Son of Man. Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of Man. This is his most favorite title that he uses for himself. If you look in the four Gospels, just over 80 times Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. No other title does he use more frequently than this. None even get close. There's one other person in all of Scripture that ever refers to Jesus as the Son of Man. His name is Stephen. He's found in the book of Acts. And as he is being stoned to death for believing in and following the Son of Man, he set, cries out to the Son of Man. He sees the Son of Man. There's another reference to the Son of Man that kicks off the whole process of Jesus using this title. It's found over in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel writes this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. This is just a magnificent passage of scripture. The son of man came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's the first time ever in scripture that there is one like a son of man. And this isn't like any old ordinary son of man. This son of man comes before the ancient of days who is none other than God the Father. No one can see God and live, the scriptures tell us, but this son of man came before the ancient of days, God, and he lived and he thrived and he was given a dominion and he was given rule and authority that would never be extinguished. And it is this title in Daniel that Jesus adopts for himself and refers to himself more than 80 times in our gospels. He is the son of man. This title, son of man, is clearly a strong reference to Jesus' humanity. No doubt about it, son of man, right? It's a strong reference to his humanity. I want us this morning to understand his humanity rightly and fully. Because he's not merely a human being. 
He's a son of man from Daniel and what Daniel saw. This title declares something more than mere humanity. He is the unique representation of mankind. He is the son of man. He is not merely human. He is the human being. He is the one true man who lived as God designed us to live. Sinless. God created man in the garden to work that garden for him. And that work was to be a service of worship. He made him perfect and right and pure and just. And he was to live in fellowship with God, his maker, forever. But he disobeyed God. And death entered through the one sin of the one man into the world. But Jesus Christ comes along as the ultimate human being, as the one true man that fully lived out what God designed for humanity to live out. And that is perfect, pure obedience to every single jot and tittle of the law of God. The Son of Man did it. He is the representative of all of us before God. Because he did what we cannot do. And that is live sinless. Yes, so Jesus starts by telling us he's the son of man. There's another title that we're very familiar with. That we do not need to relax. We need to bring it right here to front and center as we look at this passage. There's another title for Jesus. There's another son title of Jesus. It's the son of God. And he is God's son. He's born of a woman, but he's conceived by the Holy Spirit in that woman. And so we have the God-man, Jesus Christ, son of God, son of man. I just want you to pause for a moment. That's all I'm going to say about this title. And just take that in for a moment. We're talking about a unique human here, like none other you've ever met or will meet. He is the son of man, He is also the Son of God. Let's move to our second phrase, and I'm going to build out just a little bit more on this. Our second phrase is this, even this Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So now we're going to answer the question, what? What did this Son of Man come to do? Well, he came not to be served, but he came to serve. I want you to consider who it is that came to serve rather than to be served. It is impressive to think that a human being would serve others besides himself. When we see humans serving others, we are going, wow, that's impressive. That's unselfish. But it's an altogether more astonishing truth when we see that God came to serve rather than to be served. That takes this to a whole different stratosphere. The Son of Man, the Son of God came to serve, not to be served. Jesus is God in the flesh. We talk about it every Christmas. Emmanuel means God with us. We sing of Emmanuel at Christmas. This is God in the flesh, and God in the flesh, he took on flesh to serve, not to be served. 
It is God who came to serve those whom he created and those whom sinned against him. That is astonishing. We have wronged God and God said, I'm going to go serve them. That is not what humanity does. Only God can do that. Now, as we work through these verses or these phrases, this is one verse, as we work through these phrases, I want to draw your attention. We're going to take a little bit different approach from maybe how this passage is preached. I want to draw your attention to some key words. I I would like for you to learn a little bit here about how to study a verse intentionally. And I, I want us to look at one little word just in verse 45, that first phrase. It says, for even the Son of Man... I'd like for us to zero in on the word even. It's a little word. It's maybe out of the way. You might pass over it real quickly, but I want you to know that behind that word is some massive truth. So circle the word even in your Bible, and let's understand what this even means. It's used here, if I want to get grammatical with you, and, and I hope you'll tolerate this for a moment. It's used here as an adverb. And it is used to emphasize something that is surprising, something that is extreme, or something that is paradoxical. For even the Son of Man. And that's surprising that what's going to be said after that phrase, even the Son of Man, it merits the word even being inserted in there before the title Son of Man. Because it is odd. It is outside of the norm that we would be talking about the creator of the universe taking on flesh to serve flesh that sinned against him. But Mark's inspired to tell us that it's even the Son of God who did not come to be served but to serve. Even God came in the role of a servant. There are many scriptures that support this. Turn with me in Philippians chapter 2, for instance. I want you to turn there. In Philippians chapter 2, we read this magnificent passage that I think is very parallel to this 45 in Mark 10. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now he, he defines Christ Jesus for us. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We're going to be back in this passage. Keep your thumb there or put your your Allen Day bookmark there, if you will. Many scriptures support that the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, came to serve. That he came as a slave, that he came in the form of a humble, lowly servant. Even born in the likeness of men, Jesus was humble and lowly. He was not royal and regal. I want you to think about the history of Jesus' life. I want you to think about his birth. The circumstances around Jesus' birth are humble and lowly. He's born not in a hotel, not in an inn, not in a palace, not in a castle. He's born in a stable. He's dropped into a feed trough. That is humble and lowly. And we do not need to forget that this is God with us in a feed trough for animals. He also lived like a lowly servant in that he says this, 
foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. (laughs) He is humble and lowly. He does not have this giant entourage of horses and camels. and He doesn't have all these vacation homes everywhere. He has no place to lay his head. This is part of the service that Jesus Christ came to provide. His appearance is even lowly. Jesus is God in the flesh, and in his taking on a flesh, he doesn't even come pretty and handsome. Listen to Isaiah 53, too. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This is how lowly and humble God came and took on flesh to dwell among us. And we also see that he died a lowly servant's death. Philippians 2.8 And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is God dying on a cross. This is God taking on human flesh. This is God that didn't think equality with God was a thing to be grasped, that he let go of it. And he came like you and me so that he could serve. It is God that did this. The great cause and the great purpose behind all of creation, stepped into his creation in humility and lowliness. That's astonishing. You can't yawn at this. This has got to grip you and put your hand over your mouth and say, amazing. Quick aside, today is a special day in God's design. God created fathers, and we as humans have decided to acknowledge and honor fatherhood today. Well, I want to challenge us as fathers to focus on this little word, even, because the word goes with the Son of Man, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Dads, we have got to get that right. We are called to imitate Jesus Christ with our wives, and we need to imitate Christ in this sense with our children even. I said this last week. I'm borrowing from last week some. But we are not to do anything for ourselves when it relates to our family. Our families are to be here for us first. We are not set up to where our families are to serve us. We are called by God to imitate Jesus Christ because even he came not to be served, but to serve. And so may God mark our church family as one that is populated by fathers who do not exist in the lives of their families to be served as regal royal headsmen but that we came to our families on a day-to-day basis to serve them like our Christ did.
Mark 10, 43 through 45. Turn back over there with me. Uh, if, if we look at just a few verses before this verse 45 that we're working through this morning, Jesus says, But for whom, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So we are to be last in our families. And if we are to be great, we are going to put our families first. And Jesus Christ is our example for this. There's another little word if we move along. There's another little word in this verse that we need to look at. It's in the second phrase. For even the Son of Man came. I want you to circle the word came. It's a verb. It's an action verb. And I highlight it for you because... It is a word of intentionality. Intentionally, Jesus came. Even Jesus came with intention. I want you to understand something this morning. Jesus Christ was not a good man walking around with 12 guys when all of a sudden he got caught up in a firestorm of controversy. That is not what happened. Jesus didn't stumble into trouble. Jesus didn't go make trouble for himself either. Jesus came for the purpose of the trouble. Jesus came, as we're going to see in a moment, to be a ransom for many. And so Jesus didn't surprisingly get crucified on a cross. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, intentionally got crucified on a cross. I want you to look just above Mark 10, 33 to 35. Mark 10, 33 to 35, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Right above that verse, the people are amazed and terrified that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, see, we're going because I have an appointment with a cross. And I'm going to come up from an empty tomb on that third day. So Jesus came with intent. He came as a baby. He lived as a young teenager. He grew into manhood. He chose 12 to be his disciples, his apostles. He healed. He taught performed many different miracles, all with the intention of making his way to Calvary, where he could be a ransom for many. So he knowingly came to serve, and it was his first and only purpose for coming. It wasn't a sidebar. When he came, he immediately, through teaching and miracles and walking on the earth, made his way down to Jerusalem to die for me. So I want you to pause for a moment and I want you to worship Christ in your heart as an intentional, humble servant who came on a mission specifically for you and many others. Do you embrace this truth about our Christ? Here's my third phrase. And it answers the question, okay, he came to serve, not to be served. 
third question, how did he serve? Well, the text says that he gave his life as a ransom. That's how he served. Sure, he washed feet. Sure, he healed people. We'll see one next week, another blind Bartimaeus. But he came to serve us to the extent that he would give his life as a ransom. That's it. Things were done along the way to point to and ultimately amplify his ransom act. His death provided a payment to purchase freedom for other people besides himself because he was not a bondage. He was not in bondage. He was not a slave to anything. Ransom, the text here says he, his life was a ransom. Ransom needs to be understood as bail. A bail bond paid for prisoners, prisoners of war, hostages. There are hostages that need to be freed, that need to be ransomed. And there needs to be a price that's going to be paid to free these hostages. And I want you to know that I have preached this to myself the back half of this whole week. Starting about late Tuesday till now. I have preached this text and so to myself. And now you're going to get the benefit of me preaching it to you. And I'm going to use a lot of yous in this passage now. You are a hostage. You are in bondage. You are such a one that Christ came for. You are a sinner who is a prisoner and a hostage to sin before you know Jesus Christ. You are a sinner who is enslaved to sin and death. From birth, this was true of you. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? You're not born pure and you went corrupt at some point. You're born corrupt. You inherited it from the first Adam that Greg read about in Romans 5. Through sin, death entered into the world. And through that one man, death spread to all men. You are in bondage. You have need of a ransom to be paid for your freedom. God the Son came to serve as your ransom because you cannot, could not ransom yourself. Impossible. Turn with me to Psalms 49. Psalm 49. I want you to really be familiar with this passage this morning. You might make a note in your Bible to reference it, cross-reference it with Mark 10, 45. So Psalm 49 Verse 7, very, very critical. Here's what the sons of Korah were inspired to write. <clears throat> Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. So this passage makes it very clear. Your works cannot save you. No man can ransom another. So your works cannot even save another person. Parents, you cannot save your children. You can't get that done. You need someone to pay the ransom for your kids. You can't pay the ransom for yourself. Your life is not worthy of being a ransom. 
because your life is corrupt, because you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is only Jesus' works that can ransom you from bondage to sin and death. Why? Because he was without sin. Only he, because he's sinless, can have a life that is worthy to be the ransom payment for your sinful life. This is core to Christianity. It's only through his service and his work that you can be saved. So here's another question that I might ask. A ransom has been paid. It's been paid by the Son of Man. Who was the ransom paid to? Boy, I'm going to tell you something. This is an issue that has much controversy swirling around it throughout the ages of the church for the last 2,000 years. I think it's very important that we understand this morning who Christ paid the ransom to. And it might not be who you think. Many have jumped to the conclusion that the ransom was paid to Satan. It makes sense. That kind of feels right at first glance, but it's not the case. There's a man that lived in the second century named Origen. He wrote a massive, massive document about the fact that Christ came and paid a ransom to Satan. And I think that's an absolute abuse of the Scriptures. Sure, we understand Satan to be called the God of this world. We, scriptures do call him that, little g, God of this world. But we need to be very, very careful that we don't give too much power and control to Satan while we rob glory and sovereignty from God. I'm going to say that again. We need to be careful that we don't give too much power and control to Satan on this text and rob glory and sovereignty from our God. Satan is nowhere mentioned in this Mark 10 passage at all. He's nowhere in the immediate context or even the wide-ranging context of this passage. The last time Satan is mentioned in Mark is Mark chapter 8, verse 33, when Jesus for the first time foretells of his death, his burial, and his resurrection on his way to Jerusalem with the twelve. And if you remember, Peter there rebukes him and says, that will not happen. And Jesus' reply to him is, get behind me, Satan. So if we're going to say Satan's involved in any of this, Satan is trying to prevent the ransom from being paid. You see this. He would not want Jesus to die and rise again because he knows that's his ultimate defeat. And so he, through Peter, tries to stop this march to Jerusalem. So we cannot, just from that alone, say the ransom was paid to Satan. Satan's trying to block the ransom from being paid. But let's look at two passages of Scripture that tell us for sure who the ransom was paid to. One is still in Psalm 49, verse 7. Here's what we read. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to who? God the price of his life. God is owed something. Satan's not mentioned there. No man can do it. No man can pay a price to God for his life because his life is not worth what God would require. It's not. Let's go to Paul's writings in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Really want you to look at this, so turn with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
Starting in verse 5, we'll read 5 and 6. You need to note this in your margin to tie back to Mark 10, 45 as well. Paul writes, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So Jesus, according to Paul, is the mediator between God and man. You see that? It's not between Satan and man. It's not between Satan and God. There is a rift between God and man. There is bondage to sin. A ransom has got to be paid. There's got to be a ransomer. His name is Christ Jesus, the man, the son of man. And he makes mediation between God and men with his life, the ransom price. Jesus is clearly focused on paying a ransom to God that can be offered by no one else. We saw that even in Psalm 49. No man can ransom his own life. He needs someone outside of himself. He needs a mediator, and the mediator is Jesus Christ. You know, we often rightly say, I have been saved. We need to every now and then ask the question, saved from what? And people will say, I'm saved from hell, saved from the devil, saved from this and that and the other. I want you to understand that you have been saved from God. Saved from God. Listen to Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's the mediator and the ransom. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Saved from the wrath of God. So the ransom Jesus Christ paid was not to some paltry little devil named Satan. No, he made payment, restitution for us to God. Because God designed that a life had to be given for sin. And only Christ's life was sufficient because his life was without sin. Therefore, it could be worthy of the price of the ransom. So here's the truth. Jesus Christ as the Son of Man and the Son of God paid our ransom to God the Father. (laughs) God paid the ransom to God so that the people God made and the people that sinned against God could be made right again with God. God did it. Not a man. So I want you to pause and worship God for giving his life as a ransom to make you right with him. That that should stir in your hearts a moment of pause where you sing something in your heart like amazing grace. (laughs) He saved a wretch like me. He saved a wretch like me. These are truths that need to be worshipped over. You need to ponder on these this whole next week. Just think about him, even the Son of Man. Just worship with that this week. He came to serve, 
not to be served. Worship with that on Tuesday of this week. And to give his life as a ransom. Just worship on that because you are implicated in all of that if you believe in him. This is good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at our fourth question from this phrase, and it's the question that I posed before you of why. Why did he give his life a ransom? Why did he come to serve in that way? Well, the why is answered in a two-word phrase, for many. You could also ask the question, who? For many. There's another little word that we've got to circle in verse 45. And this is probably the biggest word of all of them. It's the word for. (laughs) You're saying, Edward, that's a three-letter word, big deal. It is the big deal of Scripture. I I think that word right there in this context in verse 45, this may very well be the biggest word in all of the Bible. Okay, you say, whoa, Edward. Well, listen to me. In this context... That little word for means in the place of. He gave his life as a ransom in the place of many. That's what for means. We also would like to say it like this. He gave his life a ransom as a substitute for many. In the place of or as a substitute for. That's what for means. That is a huge word in your Bible and it needs to be circled with exclamation points in the margin. And you need to write worship because of this word. For many, Jesus gave his life as a ransom. In the place of, as a substitute for. And we love in this church, we love the doctrine of substitution. Christ in our place, dying as we deserve so that we might not and we might live forever. Oh, for, thank you, Father, for this word for in this passage. Now, how about this? For whom? Many. The word is many. Who are the many? That's a big question. It doesn't say right here for all. Now, Christ did die for all, but right here in this text, he died for many That implies that there's some that are not going to get the benefit of this. And there's a place called hell that's reserved for those people. We cannot say that it's a universalism theory where all people die and go to heaven. If that's the case, all the doctrine and all the teaching that Jesus gave on hell is for nothing. And we could start throwing out all all kinds of other things that Jesus spoke of. He died for many in the place of many. So who are the many? We, we need to know the answer to this question. And then we need to say, am I one of these many? Well, in John 15, verse 13, starting in verse 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. I think that's a really good place to go with this ransom passage because he says here, he laid his life down for his friends. You hear it? He served his friends, by paying a ransom with his life for his many friends. And then read what it says next. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So I'm going to ask you this morning, 
Are you counted as a friend of Christ? Are you among the many that he paid the ransom for? You will know, not because you have mere mental assent of who Jesus Christ is, but you will know because you will read his commands through faith and belief and trust, and you will do what he says here. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So through belief in Jesus Christ, you believe his word. He then has become your Lord and Savior. He then brings to you in the scriptures commands. And you are of the many if you obey those commands. And I'd say start this afternoon by reading the Sermon on the Mount to hear some commands from Jesus. And if you believe in him first, you will then obey him second. And your obedience will be proof that you are a friend of Jesus Christ's. You are a ransomed one by our Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. So do you obey the commands of Christ? Now I want you to pause and consider whether you are his friend. And if you aren't, I would urge you this morning to repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and, and say to him, I believe that you did come to ransom many. Would you include me in that ransom payment to God for the sins that I committed against him? That's how you become a Christian. So as we close and we prepare now to come to the table, I want you to consider Mark 10.45 in light of what Paul wrote to the Colossians. To the church in Colossae. Colossians 1 16. Paul says, For by him, this is Jesus Christ, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Sounds just like the Son of Man in Daniel 7, doesn't it? And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who created all things and holds all things together didn't expect you to serve him, but he came to be your servant. God paid the ransom to God that sets you free from sin and death. We're going to worship now together as a congregation by remembering the method by which Jesus Christ paid the ransom. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. We're going to remember the act, the ransom act that Jesus endured so that we might be freed as God's people. His body was broken his blood was shed, and we're going to symbolically remember that here in just a moment. I want you to consider 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is what we are celebrating this morning at this table. And so I want you to bow your heads with me now.
And I want you to think on what you've just heard as we prepare for the table. I want you to worship him with thanksgiving that he would be kind enough to come as a servant. I want you to be repentant. I want you to come to the table rightly, confessed up, asking Christ to wash you of your impurities this last week, this last month, this morning. I don't want us to come to the table in vain. If we are not repented, if we are not right with Christ, we're not ready to receive His body and blood. We, we need to worship with pure hearts this morning. I'm going to pray, and I want you to stay in a, in a heart of prayer for a moment, and then we will, at the right time, ease into the supper and continue our worship together as a congregation. Father, we thank you so much for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to pay a ransom that was owed to you for our sins. Jesus Christ, on behalf of these, your people here, we say thank you for going to Jerusalem as a ransomer for many. Thank you for dying for many in this room. And if there's one in this room that has not yet believed, I pray that you would Serve them even in this moment by showing them this truth about yourself and giving them hearts to believe. Holy Spirit, as we worship our Christ, would you give us hearts that can worship in purity and reverence? And God, we ask that you'd be honored now by our partaking of this sacred, sacred meal in remembrance of what our Christ did for us. And we pray all of this in his strong name, amen.